anything too serious happen. But uh, I didn't get to show as much as I wanted to, but I thought we got a, enough to make your head swim with a lot of different things. Uh, poor Al Terry was on a slope about like that on a trail about just before dark trying to get up and see that carved figure of the Jesuit or the Templar, whichever he is. And uh, the pebbles in the trail slipped and he got an extra thrill that the rest of us didn't enjoy. Kind of slid down for about, what, 12, 15 feet on his backside. So he survived and is here today and everyone's doing well, I think. So I, I felt it was a very fine day as well. Uh, I'd like to thank Tate's for the new work we have here and on the wall there going into the kitchen. For those of you from out of town that haven't been there yet, this is a view of the Virgin River going down between the West Temple and the Watchman on the left. And uh, the one on the right back there is of, uh, from Angel's Landing, a view down the canyon from there. Uh, you have a treat ahead for you if you haven't been into Zion yet when you go up on Monday to have opportunity to have our service there as well as then the rest of the day to enjoy the park and the incredible beauty that God has placed there. I'll just touch on tonight being the evening we have a meal together here in the hall. Uh, we'll plan on eating about seven. So we've already made announcements about that. I need not belabor the point. Now, I cut yesterday short, so I guess I'll have to cut today long. I'll try not to do that. <clears throat> but uh, let's go to the Psalms and pick the story up again here uh, at the beginning of chapter 6. I was struck in reading back through these, the amount of times that reference is made to Christ himself uh, things that are in some ways subtle that David was saying, and yet they expressed many of the things that Christ said in his teachings and many of the things that uh, he thought and that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, when he was being crucified, when his enemies came against him, and so on, and his reactions to them. I'll try to point a few of those things out as we go. But the emotion in these early chapters of Psalms is really very up and down. From the despair of still being a human here to the praise and the glory of God for the ultimate redemption from where we are and what we shall be. And to me, it, it very much shows the conflict that you and I go through day in and day out and trying to be what we ought to be and wishing we were what God is and falling so far short and all of the stuff that is around us that is so perplexing to us. So I can certainly see myself, and, and I'm sure you can yourself, mirrored here in these chapters, remembering that they weren't just something that was, were written down as songs and that was the end of them, but God preserved them through thousands of years until today so that, as it was said in Timothy, they might be used for us. Or that was the one I'm thinking of was in Corinthians. I think 1 Corinthians 10 about how these things are written for those upon whom the ends of the age would come. But they're there, as Timothy was saying, 
uh, or Paul was to Timothy for inspiration and strengthening and instruction and so on. So there is much here for us. Psalm 6, O Eternal, rebuke me not in your anger, neither chasten me in your hot displeasure. The verse before that, the chapter before that ended with God will bless the righteous and with favor you'll compass him as with a shield. So he's summarizing that particular song with God will take care of us. Now the very next one opens with uh, yeah, God will take care of us, but I'm still not what I ought to be by any means. Please don't chasten me too heavily. And don't we go up and down like this. Have mercy upon me, O Eternal, for I am weak. O Eternal, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But you, O Eternal, how long? The how long question has been one on the lips of God's people throughout the ages. Sometimes that is one of our deepest sighing emotions. How long, O Lord? It reminds me of Habakkuk, who sat on his watch there and said, How long, O Lord? And then he said, Well, I guess I have no answer to that, so I'll sit on my watch until it happens. And he's dead in his grave, and the things that he was longing to see accomplished have not yet happened. And in fact, he was dealing with the incoming Assyrian army and the destruction of Israel, and indeed it happened. We are in the same position today, realizing that the heathen, the destroyer of the Gentiles, is on his way, as we read the other day in Isaiah. So, we're in pretty much the same position Habakkuk was, and that's why that prophecy was written as an end-time prophecy, as is Psalm 6. How long? Return, O Eternal, deliver my soul, O save me for your mercy's sake. And those could have been some of the thoughts of Christ as well, right there, as he started going into uh, his troubles. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who shall give you thanks? We need to pray, we need to draw close to God now, because we never know when we're going to enter the grave and the dead know nothing. It's all over for us, and our judgment is, in that sense, complete. I am weary with my groanings, all the night make I my bed to swim, I water my couch with tears. I don't know how often we do that, uh, we're restless and frustrated and discouraged at times, and if we're wakeful at night, sometimes our minds can lead us to bemoan ourselves and pity ourselves and feel the frustrations of life, just as David did here. My eye is consumed because of grief. It waxes old because of all my enemies. And then he, he wants to just fight it off. He says, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Eternal has heard the voice of my weeping. So he says, I'm talking to God, I'm weeping, I'm crying out, God is giving me strength and courage, but all of you who are around me, who hate me, who are against me, go away, he says. I don't need that. Just as we were told to depart from Babylon, we don't need this world and its society and its culture. Isn't it kind of like a mouse 
looking at the snake. You know, you feel helpless, you feel hopeless, and yet there's a deadly attraction somehow. You don't just turn tail and run, but you're looking at danger saying, oh no, here it comes. And we see the world around us, and it's a fatal attraction. It's there, it has a pull on us, a magnetism to it that draws you there because of our human nature. And yet, within you somewhere, the the spiritual side and God's Spirit groaning for you says, pull me away from this. Get it away from me. So we in part remove by coming here, and yet it is still all around us, and it is still a fight that we go through. But he just had that emotion, get it away because of what it's doing to me. The Eternal has heard my supplication. The Eternal will receive my prayer. So he says, in spite of the frustrations and the the enemies and the difficulties, God's going to hear my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. God loves the people of this world so much that he gave his only begotten son that they might ultimately have eternal life. And yet at the same time, he hates the sinfulness and he can't stand sin. And we, to what degree we're like him, have gotten where we hate to see the sin around us and we despise the sin within us. And we wish it could just go away. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, it will. I'll be over. Be done. And our enemy is going to be vexed and ashamed when they see the mystery of God completed in us. So it's not something we just look forward to, but it's something that is going to impact the world incredibly when they see that we were right and that man is to become God. And the 144,000 will be the bride of Christ. What a wonderful time, not just for us, but for the world that can see a glimmer of hope, a ray of hope suddenly. That, hey, all we've been through these last years of tribulation and plagues and everything else, it can be different. What a revelation that's going to be. So they depend a great deal upon us whether we recognize it day by day or not. We can have an incredible impact on this world. It's not just Christ returning, but it's His saints rising to meet Him in the air where they can see that which is flesh and blood just like them suddenly changed into something all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-being. Chapter 7, O Eternal my God, in You do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. Well, this is a learned response where we, through life, hopefully, come to trust God more and more. We may not trust Him with much at first, but as we learn to know Him, truly know Him, then we begin to turn loose, release our fears and our insecurities, and learn to depend upon Him. So that when we pray, give me this day, or give us this day, we should have a bigger circle than that, give us our daily bread, then we come to expect it. We come to depend upon it. 
We look to Him for it to supply our every need. And that is a trust and a relationship growth that we need to be working on daily. To come to trust Him more with our health, with our wealth, with our well-being, with our families, with everything. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. First Peter, or Peter uh, addressed this in 1 Peter 5.8 where he said, Satan goes about as a raging lion, seeking whom he may devour. Uh, he probably picked up on this very verse right here in order to make that statement. O eternal my God, if I have done this, oh, wait a minute, yeah, lest he tear my soul in pieces while there's none to deliver. And he says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if I've torn in pieces those around me, and he was in a position of power where he could, if he so desired. In fact, David killed so many people, God called him a bloody man and didn't let him build the temple as a result of it. If there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him that was at peace with me, Yes, I have delivered him that without cause is my enemy. What did Christ teach? These are his very thoughts right here that he was expressing through David and by inspiration. He taught us immediately with his disciples to do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you and to love your enemies and do good to them. So he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the inspiration he gave David here was the same thing he taught his disciples and recorded for you and me. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yes, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay my honor in the dust. If I didn't do unto others as I would have them do unto me, then let it be done to me, he says. That's what I deserve. You know... If we don't do it God's way, if we go our way or Satan's way, and God chooses to take us by the nap of the neck and drop us in the lake of fire, we really don't have a case, do we? We had the opportunity. Now, he doesn't want to do that, and that's why he takes great pains to put us through whatever heat and pressure is necessary to get us to do what's right so that that eventuality does not come to pass. But really, if we love our neighbors as ourselves and treat others as we would want to be treated, if we could really live up to that, it would be wonderful. But if we don't, what complaint do we have? So he says, pause and think about that. Verse 6, Arise, O eternal, in your anger. Lift up yourself because of the rage of my enemies, and awake for me to the judgment that you have commanded. So shall a congregation of the people compass you about. For their sakes, therefore, return you on high. That reflects a little bit of the comment I made just a few moments ago. That when Christ returns, once the anger and the bitterness and the fighting against him ceases and they see true peace being brought to the earth, then they will come running. They'll compass him about. For their sakes return you on high. For the people around him, not just him, 
But we are here to be an example to the others and to be a light to the world that when we are raised in holiness, it will truly be a light then, the biggest light that we could ever have imagined to be. Verse 8, the eternal shall judge the people. Judge me, O eternal, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity that is in me. That which he received from God. But he didn't want God judging on external things upon the reactions of others. He wanted God to judge him based on himself. And indeed, is that not what Ezekiel 33 says? That we will each be judged according to our own doings, not the Father, the Son, or the Son, the Father. And if we do good and then turn evil... We'll be judged that way, but if we do evil and then turn good, we'll be judged on the good and the evil forgotten. So, judge me on my record. It's the only record we have. And then pray for mercy. <clears throat> Verse 9, O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. That's really what we want to see. We see a world full of crime and hate and misery, broken homes, broken dreams, and they're going to be broken huh, even more right in front of us. You know, the American dream was to have the house and the two cars and the American way of life, of materiality, and now it is quickly being taken away. I was reading an article just this morning about, uh, they were using Phoenix as an example of how the mortgage rot has gone from the fringes and into the luxury homes now, and it's continuing, and it's doing the same thing in the country, in the world. It's just going to get worse, and their dreams are going to be shattered. So, I don't hate those people. You don't hate those people. We don't want to see all this horror come down on people, and yet we certainly want to see the other side when the sin ceases and people live happily and peacefully together, as this week portrays or symbolizes. Let that wicked system, Satan's way, end. Get it away from us. It tempts us. It hurts us. But establish the just. That's what we really want to see. For the righteous God tries the hearts and reigns. That's echoed in plenty of other scriptures about how he ponders the heart. I think that's in Proverbs. Various other places that type of message is given. As we go through, you're going to see that many, many scriptures stem from the reading of the Psalms. My defense is of God which saves the upright in heart. How often do we talk about how we need to be wholehearted and upright in heart and do this thing with our might, our hand found to do it, then let's do it with our might, not half-heartedly. So the heart and the mind together are what God ponders and looks to. And those who turn themselves upright, he will save. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. That just shows his incredible patience. He is angry every day with the wicked. He was angry before Noah's flood. He was so angry, he, in his heart, said, I'll wipe them all out. 
And then he waited a hundred years as Noah built the ark. And his emotion through that was, they are so exceedingly sinful, every thought is wickedness, I want to destroy mankind, and yet he patiently waited. Just as now, he is angry every day with what he sees going on on this earth, and yet he is patiently sticking to his schedule to accomplish what needs to be accomplished, and even to allow Satan to do what Satan wants to do because he allotted him a certain time. And he is so fair that he is not going to cut Satan short. He's going to let him do his thing. And the world is going to suffer for it. But God is going to allow it because in the bigger picture, he knows that what Satan is about to put the world through is going to have a humbling effect upon them, and he will win in the long run. Just as he sicked Satan on Job and said, Hey, 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 have you noticed Job over here? Satan didn't go to God about Job. God went to, Job, to Satan about Job himself. And he turned him loose on him, save killing him. And Satan thought, oh boy, am I having fun now. And then Job repented deeply and bitterly and prayed for his friends. And that was the condition, if you'll remember, on which God blessed Job again, was when he prayed for his friends. Instead of reacting in self-defense and his own righteousness, he prayed for them. And then God delivered now, is it any wonder he says, pray our Father, because we're in this together. Verse 12, if he turn not, he will, whet, whet, <laughs> he will whet his sword, he hath bent his bow, and made it ready. Reminds me of the book of Revelation, where Christ will come back on the white horse with his vesture dipped in blood and all his saints with him because we'll have been to the throne of God, had the marriage and the honeymoon, then we're going to come back with him when he comes back to make war and put down all rebellion and set up the kingdom of God. So he's preparing himself ahead of time. <clears throat> he has also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordained his arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travails with iniquity and has conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. I will praise the Eternal according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Eternal Most High. So man's contrivances are going to come back on his own head, but the contrast here is, let's not go there, let's turn to God because He is the salvation and the only answer to the problems that we as individuals and this whole world have. Chapter 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Your name in all the earth. That one's in the hymn book. All of the whole chapter almost is. So we, use, we read this one more often than we think we do. Every time the song leader calls this number, we rehearse this very psalm. It's a beautiful one. How excellent is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings have you ordained strength because of your enemies, that you might still the enemy and the avenger. Now, what did Christ say? If you will enter into the kingdom of heaven, become as a little child. We, in our pride and vanity and ego, lift ourselves up and think we're really something as humans. It starts very young, says the the pride of a young man is in his strength and so on there in Ecclesiastes. But we can become self-important very easily. And if not truly important, at least important in our view compared to others, which isn't wise. But it's out of the mouths of babes. It is not those who are powerful, mighty, noble, who have made a name for themselves on this earth, but those who have humbled themselves and become as babes, helpless, in a sense hopeless, apart from daddy and mommy, apart from God and the church, as the scriptures point out. We need God, and we need each other together as the ecclesia or the church to encourage and strengthen and sharpen one another as iron. To help each other along, because we are babes in Christ. See how much the New Testament reflects the Old, all through here. Out of the mouth of babes and suckling, you have ordained strength. We start out weak, we start out small. We humble ourselves as a little child to be baptized. We're supposed to wash away our vanity, our ego, our self, our pride, at that time, but we keep trying to come back, don't we, daily. But that's where the strength is going to come from, is from little children, as Christ said. Little children in a spiritual sense. Verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him or have anything to do with him. Have you noticed how this big full moon comes over this red mountain over here in the evening sometimes, just before the feast? It's incredible. And it makes you feel really, really small by comparison. As you look at the Milky Way at night, not really when the moon is full here, you don't see it this time of, of the month, but when it's, the moon is dark, the stars are incredibly uh, visible here, the Milky Way spread across the, the sky. And it makes you feel pretty small if you sit out and look at the things that God has made. I felt rather small yesterday looking down from the cascade of falls and Zion laid out below. It's just so breathtakingly beautiful. And it makes you feel small by comparison. You know, God made all this. I can barely make my bed. So who are we that God would pay any attention to us? For if you made him for a little while lower than the angels, and that is a more correct translation, because we are going to be higher than the angels, very God. They are created beings made as servants, much as horses, cows, sheep, goats, dogs, and cats are servants to us. Pets are friends to us. That's the function of the angels. We're going to be above them. So we're made a little while lower 
And yet, He's crowned us with glory and honor. I don't feel very glorious, in some ways too honored yet, but that is what is ahead of us. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Hearkening back to Genesis, where Adam was told, you'll have dominion over the fowl of the air and the bird, you know, and the, the animals and so on. All sheep and oxen, yes, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. Do you think David ever read the book of Genesis? O eternal, our eternal, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Paul echoed this in Romans 1, where he told us that the invisible things of God are seen through the creation that is before us. David calls our attention to the creation, Adam and Eve, and Paul tells us, look back to what God has done. Look at what is around you. It didn't just appear. It doesn't make a bit of sense. It had to have been created by somebody with incredible love and power and ability and creativity to see what we see around us. How excellent is his name as seen in all the earth that he has created. Chapter 9, moving right along here. I will praise you, O Eternal, with my whole heart. Again, David was a man of action. David, whatever he did, he did with his whole heart. If the ark came and he danced in the street and his kilt flew up, so be it. He was going to be enthusiastic. His wife didn't much care for the idea, but he was not paying any attention. He was ecstatic to see the return of the Ark of the Covenant. But whatever he did, whether it was good or whether it was bad, whether it was righteous or whether it was sinful, he went after it. He did it with his whole heart. Whatever our hand finds to do, do it with our might. If you're working, work hard. If you're praying, pray hard. If you're helping, help to the best of your ability with eagerness. It's easy for us as human beings, I guess especially as we age and we have aches and pains and hurts, it gets to the point that life can be sometimes wearisome, can be difficult, and you think, is it really worth the effort? Wouldn't it be better if I just sat right here rather than get up and put my heart into something? Our bodies grow old, but our enthusiasm, our desire to do anything we can do needs to remain fresh and alive. Because even as we age physically, we can still pray, we can still help, we can still strengthen. If we've learned anything, we might help those who are younger and struggling if they won't listen. <clears throat> Different problem. But I'm talking about the older, and God instructs there to teach the younger. They have to do it very carefully, diplomatically, lovingly, and kindly, and gently. Otherwise, it doesn't go over too well. But 
you have accumulated, if you're older, quite a bit of knowledge, hopefully some wisdom. And there are those who have not been through what you've been through. And they don't know what they don't know yet. They think they know it all. I knew nearly everything when I was 22 or 3, I remember. But, uh, man, I forgot a lot. (laughs) And I began to realize not only didn't I have all the answers, I didn't even know all the questions yet. Probably still don't by far. There's a lot to learn. But whatever you attack, and if it be Christianity, attack it with your heart. Then you won't have too much time to worry about woe is me and poor pitiful me because you're attacking what God wants done wholeheartedly. And your energy and your focus goes there. Yeah, you may be working a job somewhere, but how would Christ do that job? With his heart or... Enough said. I will show forth all your marvelous works. By the life we live and the way we go about it, we should be showing His marvelous works. That's let your light shine before the world. So that they can actually see it. You don't have to go out and brag like the Pharisees did, but just quietly shine. Christ said, let your light shine. And light is generally pretty quiet. Have you noticed? The Pharisees like trumpets better. Made a lot of noise. A light is quiet, but gives illumination. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O you Most High. When my enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. There's a prophecy for the future. It can happen in our lives on a daily basis, but it's a prophecy for all his enemies to fall. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat in the throne judging right. Now, we may not think we're doing well, and maybe we aren't, and maybe we are. And sometimes, maybe, in spite of ourselves, we're doing better than we think we are, and we may be putting treasure in heaven not even realizing it. Because God is there, and He is positive and upbeat. And when Satan accuses us, he can say, well, yeah, but. Do you remember they also prayed about that and asked for my mercy and forgiveness? I don't think Satan brings that up too often. He doesn't say, God, you know, I I was accusing that one, but, you know, they went in and they prayed and they asked forgiveness and can't blame you for forgiving them. It's just not his way. All he does is accuse, put down, and be negative. And he tries to bring up all our old sins, all our old mistakes. God says, no. I forgave that. Forget that. Come up with something fresh. Oh, okay. That's not too hard either, is it? So we keep asking forgiveness and mercy, don't we? This being human is difficult. Verse 5, you have rebuked the heathen, you've destroyed the wicked, you've put out their name forever and ever. That obviously is a prophecy because it hasn't happened yet. He speaks of it as though it is already done because he can do that and he knows he will do it. Meantime, it's a prophecy. O you enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end, and you have destroyed cities, their memorial is perished with them. But the eternal shall endure forever. 
He has prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. We've quoted that one many times. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. So you can expect a fair judge and jury in that sense. If you've been to the courts of this land, you've learned about lying, perjury. You've learned about chicanery and deals made behind the scenes where you as the helpless victim are ripped back and forth by unscrupulous lawyers. And there is no justice in the land. But looking forward to God's judgment on us, it is going to be done fairly. No politics, no playing of favorites. That's the way God is. David, later on in this book, says, I'd rather put myself at your mercies, O Eternal, than the courts or the judgment of this world. I don't want them judging me. I want you judging me. And even though I've sinned and you might be harsh and I deserve punishment, he says, I'll turn it over to you. I don't, what is that in the Psalm? That's maybe back in the story of his life there where uh, God did offer a judgment and his son died. But David lived and Bathsheba lived and Solomon came along. So even though God did exact a penalty, uh, in the long run, he blessed because of the change of heart and attitude and the repentance that was given. Verse 9, the eternal rest, a refuge in times of trouble. Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape these things that are coming. He is the refuge, the only place to go where you can reasonably expect any mercy, any help, any strength, any protection. And they that know your name will put their trust in you. For you, eternal, have not forsaken them that seek you. And here are the conditions. If we seek him, if we know his name and put our trust in him, those are the ones he will look to. Sing praises to the Eternal which dwells in Zion. Declare among the people His doings. Now Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 show that Zion and Jerusalem are symbolic of the church. We know the physical place of Zion throughout the Psalms. The physical location is also a place of refuge. So there are many things behind this statement. Sing praises to the Eternal which dwells in Zion. He dwells in us because we are a part of Zion and Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem to come. The 144,000 make up the holy city. So it is in us that He dwells, but He is also going to come and literally dwell. So this has many facets to this prophecy and this Actuality. Sing praises to the Eternal which dwells in Zion. Declare among the people His doings. Now, if you put a lot of prophecies together, you know that there is a remnant of the church coming out to rebuild the spiritual temple and perhaps the physical as well, and that they are to be a light set on a hill to the world, so that their light may shine from Zion, the towers of Zion up here. 
and be a light to the world. So it's not just us walking in our own glow uh, as a light to the world, but God is going to set up those He protects and gives refuge to as a light to the entire world. And indeed, then, from that light will go forth to witnesses against the way of the world that will point to the light that is shining from Zion. That's the way this whole thing is coming down. Declare among the people His doings. That's why I've been saying all along, and this underlines it, that God is going to give a microcosm of the kingdom of God, premillennial, to His remnant people, so that they might point to that as the doings or the works of God, of what He is capable of doing. Out of Zion. When He makes inquisition for blood, He remembers them. He forgets, forgets not the cry of the humble. Much as in Noah's day, where He had blood in mind. And he saw the righteousness of Noah and said, I will make an exception. Today, he sees the world steeped in iniquity, whose continual thought is evil all the day long. And he has blood in mind. But he looks at us and has pause and says, I will not wipe it all out. But if you do not... Do what you're supposed to do. And you don't show the world what needs to be seen. He said, I will utterly wipe out everyone. In one way, in one sense, the fate of the world is in our lap. Now, Christ is the Savior. Let's not depart for one split second from that. But he says, except it were for the righteous, no flesh would be saved alive. So there is an incentive there for some to be righteous that mankind might be spared and a millennium might actually happen. In one way, God puts the hinge on us. It's a heavy responsibility, but we need to sila, pause and think about that. He put a lot of weight on our shoulders, brethren, that we would be righteous. And for the elect's sake, it will be cut short and mankind will be saved from total annihilation. Now, Christ made forgiveness and mercy possible. The Father created us and put us here to become righteous. But He's going to give us the responsibility of ruling the world for a thousand years with Christ in righteousness. And He saddles us now with a certain amount of that responsibility, doesn't He? Because if we're going to shoulder it and do it on a worldwide basis... He needs to try us and test us to see if we're up to the challenge. Now, of course, we'll be changed in a moment in a twinkling and made immortal, and thereby be given the gifts and abilities and so on that we lack, 
But He wants to know if our minds, our hearts, are settled on His way of life and righteousness. And He's trying and testing us now. And He's saying, if you that I have elected to shine my light in the eyes of the world do not come up to scratch, I'm going to wipe it all out. So the weight of the world, in one way, a very minor way in a sense, is on our shoulders. Now, how can he make such a statement? Is he making that statement based upon our character and our righteousness? No. He's making that statement based on his capacities and his confidence in himself and his son to get us to the point of righteousness that that prophecy can be fulfilled and mankind will be saved ahead of time. It's not our abilities that he's basing that responsibility he's putting on us with or by. It's his ability to get us to be what we ought to be. And that's why he takes that which by nature is not godly and puts it through the spin cycle and the, what's the other one? The agitator cycle. To get us cleaned up and ready so that he can use us to help save the world. It doesn't depend on us in that sense. It depends on God and his capacity to do with us what needs to be done. But he still lays it on us, doesn't he? Let's see, where was I down here? Uh, about making inquisition for blood, he forgets not the cry of the humble. So again, be humble, be as a little child, willing to be taught, willing to be led, willing to be strengthened, willing to be inspired, so that we can fulfill what he wants, and he doesn't have to make blood of the entire world. Verse 13, have mercy upon me, O eternal. So, in the same breath that we are given that responsibility and given the encouragement that he is our refuge, David immediately asks for mercy, because on hearing what we just discussed, we feel the weight and the responsibility so the immediate thought is, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So if you had that reaction, then you had the right reaction. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me, though you lift me up from the gates of death. This could be thoughts of Christ again, because much of this first section is about man and about Christ's experience as a man and facing death as we all do that I may show forth all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The only praise left on the earth is going to be the faithful ones praising God in the gates of Zion. See the story coming together here. The daughter of Zion is the church, mentioned many places in the Bible. Or the daughters of Zion, the split-up church that we have today of which he will choose the fairest of them all, as the end of Proverbs 31 says, and make her the example to the rest of the church and the world. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made, 
and the net which they hid is their own foot taken. So he says, daughter of Zion, you go to Zion, and you set an example for the world because their foot is caught in their own net. The amount of prophecy here is incredible. That's where the world is standing today. The eternal is known by the judgment which he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Then he says, Higayon, it's the only time that's used in the Bible. It again is a musical term which indicates solemn movement. In other words, if the, the melody is going along at a more rapid clip, this term means slow it down, make it more solemn. When you consider the way the world is today, it's a very solemn, sobering situation because the wages of sin is death, the world is sold in sin, and the world is about to die. Except those who take refuge in God. So he uses both musical terms here. Slow it down in solemnity and pause and think about the way of the world and what's going on out there. The wicked shall be turned into the grave, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Be reminded, in spite of what's going on around us, that God will not always forget. If we have needs... He knows it. Didn't Christ say, He knows all your needs before you even go pray? There's nothing about you and what you might want or need that God doesn't see before you even realize it. But, He doesn't always give everything you want or need because it isn't good for your character. That's the way He operates. Just as we don't give our children everything they think they want or need because it would spoil them rotten and make them worse than they are. Or less good than they are, however you want to put that. And what good is a spoiled kid? What good is a spoiled Christian? Not much count. Spoiled, what do you do with spoiled? Throw it in the garbage. Arise, O Eternal, let not man prevail, let the heathen be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Eternal, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Think about that one. Put them all in fear. Now, isn't the fear of God the beginning of wisdom? We've heard about that already in the feast two or three times. (coughs) God is going to have to scare the living daylights out of mankind... And most of them will die, and that fear will be in their mouths when they are resurrected in the great white throne judgment. And those who live through it will see it all, and they are going to fear for their very lives. And then when the last plagues stop, and Christ puts down all rebellion with the sword, and then turns and speaks comfortably, the fear that has been instilled in them is going to make them listen. That's what's required. 
Human beings are pretty stubborn, aren't they? We are so hard-headed and so stubborn as people on the earth. You would think you would begin to listen before you went through everything that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, the whole book talk about. You'd think people would start to say, what's going on here? I think I better turn to God. So instead, you read on the internet some article about how bad things are getting and how they're beginning to fall apart. And somebody down in the comments will say, well, we all need to turn to God. And look at how much the others, commenters, poo-poo that. Oh yeah, let's bring God into this kind of an attitude. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know about God. Don't want to hear about God. It's the economy, stupid. It's not about God. We just need a Republican back in there. You know, or whatever insane thing they have in mind. And I'm not a Democrat. Maybe I should also say another Democrat to follow this one. They're all a bunch of lying, thieving crooks, is all they are. We know that. We're nonpartisan, totally. The only party we adhere to is ambassadors for Christ. I give my vote there. That's the only vote I have. That's the only vote that will do any good is for Christ to come back. And boy, is he going to be upset. But that's what it's going to take. For mankind to begin to truly listen and put himself aside. Arise, O Eternal, and put them all in fear. That's what has to be done. Scary, but let's hit ten. Why stand you afar off, O Eternal? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Here we are in trouble in the church, trouble in the world. Where's God? There are many prophecies and scriptures that indicate that people say, where's your God? Where's he who's going to deliver you? Speaking to the righteous. And it will appear to us and to them that indeed God really isn't hearing our prayer. Now we, speaking of those here who moved here already, came here, oh, Right after 2000, 2001 began to move. And we expected things to really start popping right away. I think almost to a man or woman. And it's taken longer for it to pop than we thought. Why do you start wishing it would pop at the eighth month and you've got to wait another? But you get tired of carrying the burden, don't you girls? That last month, you don't want to hear anything about cows, hippos, Or anything large. Or heavy. Or burdensome. Can't even turn over in bed. Well, God uses that analogy about how she brings forth to deliver and nothing comes but air. That's what he says. I think it's in Isaiah. Becomes difficult to carry the burden. So we think, where are you, God? You know, the attitude that you're fighting right now, and when is this thing going to happen? I'm tired of being single and nobody to marry. I'm tired of trying to make a living and i got to 
pocket with holes. I'm tired of trying to be good when I want to be bad. Whatever. We get frustrated with conditions. And wonder, when are you going to do this? Well, this very situation we find ourselves sitting in today was prophesied in Psalm 10, believe it or not. You and I just have to deal with it. God knows and knew thousands of years ago right where we would be sitting today. Is it frustrating? Yes, it is. Are your health problems and creaky old bones difficult to live with? Yes, they are. The diseases of Egypt have come upon this land and we suffer from them as well. Now, is there a separation coming? Yes, there is. Did God bring the first few plagues upon Israel as well as the Mitzriamites? Yes, He did. Have I been saying, and has the church been saying, for I can remember at least 50 years, hearing comments now and then about how when we go to Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, I can remember sermons from when I was a child, more than 50 years ago, by far, actually. But maybe we would have to go through some of the plagues of Egypt before God would make a separation. You have been in the church 40, 50 years. You remember hearing stuff like that, even 30 or 40 years ago, maybe. That point was brought out. Now we find ourselves with cancer, diabetes, heart problems, you name it. Going through the entire church and even in our little group here. Terrible, horrible things to live with that we have to deal with. And God has not made a difference yet, at least not much. He does do some interventions, some little healings here and there. He's allowed some of us to die. We didn't know that that would ever happen when we first got here. We thought this thing would happen quickly and we'd get our deer's legs and everything else and everything would be fine. Wings of eagles and we could soar about. Figuratively, at least. It's taken longer than we thought. Well, maybe it's taken longer for us to achieve the level of righteousness as it is needed than we thought. It isn't all on God not being around. It might be also on us not being ready. And I don't mean to put us down and make us feel bad here. I'm just saying, God said that we would have this emotion. We'd go through this process. Where are you? Why do you hide yourself from us in the times of our trouble here? He has a purpose. It will turn around. He does say, I'll listen and I'll hear. And he says, don't give me any rest there in Isaiah until I make Jerusalem a joy. Don't let up on him, brethren. Cry out. Cry aloud. He says he'll hear the cries and the groanings of his people. When the time is right, he will answer. And all these things that we have read about and talked about, even today, about how he will Come and bless us in Zion, and we'll sing praises to them and set an example to the world out of Zion. It's going to happen. 
All these things we've read that are in God's Word haven't gone away simply because it's taken three or four or five or six years longer than we thought it might. It's still going to happen. And we are going to seek Him early. And we're going to turn with our whole hearts. I don't know what it'll take, but it's going to happen. The wicked in his pride does persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. Now, we haven't been persecuted much yet. We're hardly even known. Planning and zoning has persecuted us, I think, to some degree. When they call you a cult and say, we don't want you there, and they said it with several of our people in the room, when it was said, the first formal meeting we had with them, they expressed that they didn't want us here. You're unwelcome, but it's okay with us. Ha, 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 was a sarcastic laugh as the comment was made. Part of what is coming down on us from them is just regulatory stuff, maybe coming from UN Agenda 21 or the Patriot Act or who knows what is behind all of it. But part of it was just their attitude right there. We already got a Colorado city. Why do we need another sect out there? Was the attitude. But this is pink toothbrush, really. It isn't cancer. It's just like a fly buzzing around your nose. It's irritating, and you'd like to swat it, but you can't hit it. But it's going to get a whole lot worse. They're going to start killing anyone who will subscribe to God as the creator and the ultimate deliverer, thinking they do God a service. So what we've experienced is nothing, and yet it's frustrating, just because you have to deal with it. So they do persecute the poor. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and blesses the covetousness whom the eternal abhors. You see it all the time, the various types of wickedness in the world, and how they endorse homosexuality, how gay pride comes out, and on and on ad nauseum. There are many types of evil that are promoted today. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. In fact, he shuts God out of his thoughts. By contrast, we are to think as Christ thought and come to have his very thoughts so that God is in all our thoughts. Lofty goal, but one that we are seeking to achieve. His ways are always grievous. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As, far, as for all his enemies, he puffs at them. I can do this. I'm a self-made man. This is America. We can destroy our enemies. We are here. We will never suffer. That's the attitude of the average American, because we have our military and nobody would challenge it. So we puff at our enemies. God is going to remove that. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. Well, it says what I was just saying right there. America, we're impregnable. We're invulnerable. Nobody can hurt us. 
That's a lot of pride and a lot of vanity and a lot of ego. But Christ, or God, says we are scheduled to be taken into captivity once again. We were given this wonderful promised land beginning in 1607 when there was a permanent establishment of Israelites here. Now we're in 2011, roughly 400 years later. What have we done with this glorious promised land that had everything we could possibly need in it, as Deuteronomy says? We have polluted it, destroyed it, and now we have essentially given all our wealth to foreigners. Our fiat dollars, which are becoming worthless and they don't want them anymore, so they're going to say, I want something real. I think I'll take the parks. I think I'll take the Great Lakes. I think I'll take the Mississippi. Thank you. And I believe I'd like Iowa and Nebraska. And, well, let's just have it all. And it will happen. Sad. When will we ever learn? If anyone on this earth has a chance to reverse that trend, I'm looking at them. Pause and think of that. We're at the end of the age. The world is godless. There are very few who consider God. You are among the very few who do. I will never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places does he murder the innocent. His eyes are privately set against the poor. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He does catch the poor when he draws him into his net. Satan, mankind, the society around us, all godless. He crouches and humbles himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see it. That's repeated, is it Isaiah, Jeremiah, somewhere in there. Arise, O Eternal, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the humble. Forget not the afflicted, it could be translated. Wherefore does the wicked condemn God? How, how do you condemn God? But in our vanity and ego as homo sapiens walking the face of the earth, we've found a way, haven't we? Wherefore does the wicked re, uh, condemn God? He has said in his heart, you will not require it. There's no retribution. There's no punishment coming. God got old and tripped on his beard and he's knocked out. He don't pay any attention to us. We can do whatever we want to do down here. You have seen it, for you behold mischief and spite, to requite it with your hand, 
He said, the psalmist says, look, God, you see it. You know what's going on. They're thumbing their nose at you. You've seen it, for you behold mischief and spite. To requite it with your hand, the poor commits himself to you. You are the father of the fatherless, or the helper of the fatherless. How many times does he base his end-time judgment on us not murdering, stealing, oppressing the poor, the widow, the stranger, and so on? Says it in Zechariah, says it all through the prophecies. Malachi, don't oppress the stranger and the widow, and so on. That's a level of righteousness. Because do unto others as you would have do unto you. And the paragon, or the apex of that triangle, is that the widow and the orphan are the most helpless in society. They can't do for themselves always, and they need help. That's why we have the third tithe system, to help those who are helpless otherwise. And God uses them as a measure of how our Christianity is. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break you the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till you find none. Get rid of all the wickedness. Sort through it, break arms until there's none left. The eternal is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. He's not going to tolerate it. Eternal, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. He will listen. Seems futile. Seems like long. We already saw how long, O Lord. But it will happen, he says. You will cause your ear to hear. To judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. To judge there really means to take care of. To make a judgment on and reach forth your hand to care for. And that mankind on this earth will never again oppress the helpless. And we are called upon to help those who need help. And a lot of our judgment will be based upon how we treat the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the helpless. And helpless can be in a lot of ways. Sometimes we're such a mental, emotional wreck that we're almost helpless. Sometimes because of health, we're almost helpless. There are many factors that make us health, uh, helpless, but by far, throughout history and through society, the widow and the orphan have been the most vulnerable, so God uses that as a standard. And we need to think as he thinks. Well, let's quit there for today. Uh, we meet every day, and I don't want to wear you out unduly by always taking the full amount of time, but I think we've heard enough there to give us a lesson for the day. So we'll stop at that point.